and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. So glad that you're here today. Thanks for joining us on this today that's right we are we are coming to you uh live from the amazon or or something the the gift that seems to be going around uh social media is uh it's from from forrest gump it's a scene where he is in vietnam he says and then one day it started raining oh. and it didn't stop that's for right four months that's right that's a terrible forrest gump sometimes the rain came up from the ground it's the best i've got <laughs> i haven't seen forrest gump in probably 10 or 12 years has that aged well so it's been, I don't think it's been 10 or 12 years since I've seen it. I remember that I, so the first time I watched Forrest Gump, I was probably in middle school, I would guess, maybe like, maybe like fifth, sixth grade, something like that. And I thought it was like an amazing movie. And then I watched it like, I watched it as when I was older and I was like, oh, this has some very strong like political leanings that I don't really agree with at this point in my life. Right, yeah. So I don't know that I would say it's aged poorly, but it definitely doesn't hit me. Like it hits me different now than it did like when I first saw it. Well, you know, for me, like the, the scenes that stood out are like the scenes in the 60s when he's like in Washington and all the stuff of the Vietnam War and Given the events of the last couple of years in our democracy, I wonder if some of it is arguably more relevant. I mean, you know, that's that's. I mean, you you raise an excellent point. Well, Scott, it's the weekend. I guess we could watch Forrest Gump. Listeners, if you're a big Forrest Gump fan, please let us know. Hit us up on Twitter at, at Let's Fix This Okay, or send us an email and tell us how Forrest Gump inspired you to a life of activism and advocacy <laughs> in Oklahoma. All right. Well, let's. Uh, this week's episode is going to be a little bit different. We have a guest, a guest and a half, really, with us today. Yeah. Uh, former let's for, let's fix this board member and uh, a friend of the pod who's been on I think multiple times. Effie Rourke is here with us today. Hello, Effie. Hey guys, I'm so glad to be back. It's always exciting to join the pod. And you guys are professionals now. This is like a real thing. Well, yes. I mean, it's still in Scott's kitchen. <laughs> it's but, still in Scott's. But you sound so professional. Thanks that's, for having me. That's right. Yeah. Effie's, Effie's son, Ellis, is joining us. So if you hear a any moaning, crying, or a <laughs> pigeon sound... It's me. It, it's Scott. <laughs> it's Scott. That's right. And any, Ellis is sitting here perfectly calm. That's right. Intellectual discourse will come from Ellis, who is 14 months old? 14 months. He's a COVID baby. He was born in April of 2020, right when all the world was getting really crazy yeah and so he's just excited to see somebody besides mom today that's right sure we should have margo on she's also a covid baby and um has been she's probably been present for several episodes she may have just been sleeping early on andy do you think that our kids generation is going to be called the covid babies i'm sure someone will have it'll be like the millennials and the gen x and then like gen covid yeah yeah covid two yeah. Yeah. So, uh, well, Effie, I know that you are short on time today. So let's start with a conversation about voting access and voting rights. Uh, because yesterday, the Supreme Court of the United States, SCOTUS, um, issued their final ruling of this term. And our final rulings, there were two yesterday, one of which dealt with some voting rights or I like election access in Arizona. Yeah. So there was, there was, they, they handed down several things yesterday. So they handed down what, what some, uh, what some 
I'll say what some more liberal, uh, progressive constitutional scholars are calling kind of a massive expansion, a massive expansion of Citizens United and how money can or can't be donated in politics. I think more conservative uh, constitutional folks would say that, that, it, that it doesn't amount to that. The other thing they did is there was a case in Arizona. Um, so the Arizona legislature had passed uh, a couple of laws. So one one uh, had to do with whether or not ballots that were cast in the wrong precinct. Um, could be counted or not. So uh, sometimes people move, you know, they uh, they do, they don't have an online voter tool like we have here in Oklahoma where you can right. just go easily get your precincts updated and folks will go to their to the to the precinct where they've always voted but they've moved or the precincts have been redrawn. And so they cash their ballot thinking they're in the right spot um, and, and and the ballot doesn't count or they cast a they show up and they're not on the voter rolls and they cast a provisional ballot Right. And then when they are confirmed to be on an active voter roll somewhere else, um, the ballot is then dropped in the appropriate precinct. Um, the Arizona state legislature passed a law that said, no, we're not going to do that. You have to go to the precinct right. where you are enrolled. And, and that's the only way that you can, that's right. the way you can. And if you don't, you vote. can't vote. Basically. Yeah. Um, so that was one thing. The second thing is they said uh, the Arizona state legislature placed a, a really strict limit on who can drop off ballots for another person. So, now in Arizona, I can't give you, Andy, my ballot and you drop it off for me. It would have to be, I think, my spouse or parent um, or like a first degree relative. I don't know exactly what the yeah. what the law says. But these were both uh, sued on the grounds that they were unconstitutional under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, the Supreme Court, in an opinion yesterday by Justice Alito, held that, no, nah, these are totally fine things to do. Yeah, basically the, the SCOTUS said... Uh, just because it's inconvenient doesn't mean it's illegal, right? That's the the gist of it. And yeah. so I think, by and large, the consensus is that this makes it more difficult to claim discrimination or violation of rights under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Now, there is an obvious, I think, a substantial remedy to this, and that's the fact that Congress has the John Lewis Voting Rights Act before them. The Senate has been holding off on voting on it because they knew this ruling was coming. And so there's a way, either with how it's written now or they could amend, you know, change it, but they could effectively pass the new Voting Rights Act and by recency would supplant this decision. Like, it's, I know you guys ruled this, but afterwards we passed new law and so here's the new law. That's the thing, though, dude. They they actually um, Congress can't do that because Republicans have a majority in the Senate. And so uh, right, yeah, there's so, some other hurdles that have to address <laughs> first. But, well, they don't. Republicans don't actually have a majority in the Senate, but like right. they effectively do because of the filibuster and. Yeah. So right. even though Democrats have a Senate majority, they can't do things like pass the Voting Rights Act because right. of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act because of. Uh, the filibuster because of rules that they make up on their own. Yeah. Now the the thing though, right, is that they have, I think, you know, since Congress started earlier this year, um, there's been discussion about if and when they would choose to quote nuke the filibuster or do away with it. And this has been, you know, they're like, well, they could do it for the. <laughs> there's the pigeon noise. Uh, they could do it. Sorry, guys. For the uh, the uh, for the people act, which they did not do, they could do it for infrastructure, which they've not done. They could do it for the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. And there also is some reports that there is a more substantial bipartisan support for the Voting Rights Act. However, 
That was before the Supreme Court ruled, um, which probably made a lot of Republican senators happy. I was thinking about this earlier, and so much of this is, um, you know, under the guise of protecting our elections and blah, blah, blah. But it just seems a little bit like some members of the U.S. Senate are talking out of both sides of their mouth, right? Because did the Russians interfere in our election or not? And if not, then who are we protecting our elections from being interfered by? Like, you can't have it both ways. Either the election got interfered with, and so we need to take some action against that, although some of these actions are really much more about keeping um, certain Americans from voting, or the election didn't get interfered with, and then there's no justification for these restrictive voting laws. So I, uh, yeah, I was just thinking about that earlier, that, you know, you can't have it both ways. we got to pick a path here, folks. You know, and it's this, this, uh, this is an interesting Supreme Court ruling in a couple of ways because, so the the majority opinion in the in the uh, voting voting rights case, if you want to call it that, um, by Justice Alito, it's funny because they don't say that like all laws of this type are like always going to be fine. Like they, they kind of say like, it's a question of like degree. So he talks about when you look at, when you look at the turnout in Arizona, um, something like 98% of people or 99% of people, one of the two didn't have an issue like voting in the right precinct. Right now, when you look at people who did have an issue voting in the right precinct, um, it affected voters of color twice as more, like twice as often as it affected not like white voters. Right. So then there's this question like, okay, what matters more? The fact that it only percent that it only affected 1% of voters or does it matter that that effect was disproportionately felt by voters of color? And the court under Justice Alito's opinion seems to be saying what matters is like the total effect. Like because it was just 1%, it doesn't matter that it was twice as much voters of color because the effect was so small. Um, which is, I mean, to me, my perennial disclaimer, not a lawyer, don't even play one on TV, but it makes me wonder, okay, well then what's a big enough right. effect? Right. They don't say that. They don't lay that out in the, in the opinion to say like, oh, well, if it affects this many people, then it matters. If it affects this many, it's just like, well, 1% isn't enough. Well, and the fact it's that like it's like pornography, Scott, matter. I know it when I see it. But, but I mean, if you've been on Netflix recently, do you know it when you see it? I mean, like, there's some, there's some like stuff. I mean, on Netflix is a Sears catalog. They don't have them anymore. But yes, um, so uh, all of this we we say all this to kind of set the stage and to um, to give a backdrop for our conversation with Effie. Uh, Effie, you have lived in the last five years. Or ish, right? Please don't recount how many places it's been. Well, I'll just say in recent memory, Arizona, Oklahoma, Maine, and now Colorado. And so you have voted in more states than I have, to be sure. Scott, how many states have you voted in? Uh, I never voted in Texas. I so briefly, only one. Yeah, I. That's kind of weird because I briefly volunteered on a on a uh, Texas political campaign, but really, yeah, Tony Sanchez for governor, man, two thousand and four. No, two thousand and two thousand and three. Interesting. No. I never voted in Texas is a really great title for your book. That is, that is <laughs> that's a good. You know what? I yeah. never voted in Texas. I don't know that I voted in Texas either, and I'm a native Texan, but I, you know, came to college. When I, be, when I came of age. 
So Effie, I, I wanted to talk because Arizona is the, um, you know, one of the states involved in this SCOTUS case. Um, Maine very notably passed ranked choice voting, um, which has also been in the news recently, not for Maine, but for New York City. Um, and now you're in Colorado, which is notable for some other reasons. You haven't voted there yet because you literally just moved. But um, for our listeners who may be like Scott and I and have only voted in one state, that state being Oklahoma, which is different on its own, um, can you give us like uh, the lay of the land? Like what's uh, what's the good, bad, and ugly of voting in these states that you've been to? Yeah, and I want to first say, and this is my own hill to die on, you know, we all live in the same country. Sorry, we've got um, Ellis is, is enthusiastic about voting. Uh, we all live in the same country, and I'm not totally convinced why we need 50 different ways to vote. Shouldn't we all be voting under the same system and same rules and same laws? But that's that's my own hill to die on here. Uh, that's called socialism. They do that in communist countries. Well, pretty sure. Pretty sure what you just described is how China does it. Effie. Yeah. N- noted, well, it's better. Noted for voting. It's better. It's better. <laughs> So I'll say, you know, I worked on the Obama campaign in Arizona and and at that time, our main goal was to register voters and to help people. Uh, not, you know, my my role as an organizer was not to convince people to vote one way or the other. It was just to get them registered to vote and educated about how they could vote and exercise that right. And, you know, Arizona's system um, at the time, I thought was by far the best of any state that I've lived in. You could sign up for the permanent early voting list or PEVL, which of course now is the the target of many, many lawsuits on voting rights. Um, and you could you could sign up, you know, one time and vote by mail for the rest of, of always. Um, and it was really easy and the ballot would of course come right to your your house and you didn't have to leave or drive anywhere and and notably different than Oklahoma you did not have to re-register for that list every year again the permanent early voting list the permanent there is the important part so once you signed up you were signed up that stands out to me because Arizona also has like the 50-year driver's license thing is that still yeah Arizona's driver's licenses are good for 50 years Um, I don't know why that is i'm sure there's some very interesting story about how that came about ellis has feelings about this um so yeah if you get a driver's license and you're 25 and that's your driver's license picture it's good until you're 50 fascinating i'm sorry until you're 70 so like well into retirement that would be amazing to like walk in show your id for something and like if you're if you're you know 75 now and be like yep here's my uh, picture from 19 what would that be uh, from 1970 when I was fresh, just a spring chicken fresh yeah. out of college. But also like uh, that would alleviate the issues we have with long waits for real ID and driver's license at tag agencies here, right? Pretty sure that uh, driver's licenses that last for 50 years are also socialist. But also, well, that also is a big loss on revenue for the state, right? I mean, they get some revenue from having to read my 15 or 19 bucks every four years. I mean, that's uh, that can't possibly have anything to do with why we place limits on driver's licenses, Andy. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, Effie, when you were in Maine, did you get to vote using ranked choice voting? I did. Um, the thing about Maine and I think New England in general is everything is really, really local. So all the saying all politics is local is very true in New England. Everything's done at the town level, at the county level, um, at the at the city 
you know, at the city selectmen level. Um, so in Maine, I actually found voting to be kind of um, difficult, uh, mostly because everything was so local. So you had to go through your town office or through your city council, both to register, to get your ballot, to turn your ballot back in. Um, but that said, the ranked choice voting is really relevant for a place like that because there's uh, Maine is known to have a lot of candidates, a lot of third-party candidates um, who, who get a lot of the vote. So the ranked choice helps them a lot, I think. And I think in states like that where there is a strong third-party movement, that ranked choice voting is a really great way to go. So it was difficult in Maine not because of ranked choice voting, but because of their election laws and how they administer the elections there. Yeah, just, just the process of um, registering and obtaining your ballot seemed to be a little bit bit more burdensome. Um, although I'm sure that for folks who've lived in a state like that for a long time, they you know probably are used to it or get used to it. But certainly there did seem to be some more obstacles to overcome just in the process of voting. Inter- interesting. I think it's, it is it is interesting to your point earlier that we have 50 different ways to do it. And there's not, there are like best practices, but not like the best way. Um, and we do have a, a, a system of federalism right where states are allowed to do this and in some ways that makes it more difficult right to interfere with elections because um, it's hard enough to get on the ballot in 50 states much less figure out how to access and interfere with them or even some states not oklahoma we oklahoma uses the same voting machines throughout the entire state but there are some states where they use different machines Across the same state. Because different different county election boards purchase different machines. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. See, this is something I just am not, you know, we're all in the same country and in the same democracy. We're supposed to have the same rights. And, and a conversation about the electoral college aside, um, I, I just feel like voting is is one of our fundamental rights as Americans. And I'm, I'm not convinced that doing it 50 different ways is really the best way and I'm not sure that it's the most equitable way either and we see this when presidential elections come around and everyone floods to New Hampshire and Iowa you know I'm not why do people in New Hampshire or Iowa get more of a voice Um, I'm just not sure that that's the best way to do it because they have the highest ACT scores can I just say I I only recently learned that New Hampshire has like 400 members to their state legislature again everything is very very local in New England it's crazy that's that is for such a tiny state that is absolute bananas. What is the population of New Hampshire? Are there a million people in New Hampshire? Surely not, right? Yeah. Are there a million people in New Hampshire? Yeah. I I would be willing to bet. You know, a Google search could probably solve this. I don't know. One point five. I mean, it's a small state, but this goes back to my point. Everything in New England is very very local. Everything the major decisions are made at the town level. Yeah. I mean, I, I one point three six million is the most recent. Okay. So there's. There's the population of New Hampshire is roughly the population of the Oklahoma City metro. It's like every third person you meet is a state so, legislator. So that would be like, yeah. so this would be like if the Oklahoma City metro had a 400 person city council. Right. Now, I, I will that say, is, I think we should expand our city awesome. council. <laughs> but could you imagine if there were 400 city council people? And the thing about New Hampshire, from what I understand, is that there are like 400 members of the state legislature, but that same hyper localness extends down so there really are like every city council has a shit ton of, of city council members and count like it's and money lots of money right the property taxes in new england oh, are quite wow. high so the the town councils and selectmen and and city councils have Select. lots of um lots of decision making power with their town budgets selectmen selectmen i never heard that term until i moved to new england so it's a board of selectmen there's another. Is that like is that like related to like aldermen? 
Are those similar? <laughs> are Alderman's the word? Is that a thing I don't in know. Minecraft? I well, don't Alderman's know. a thing in Chicago. But okay. That's the only. Pl- are, and maybe are there aldermen in New York, too? But then New York also has like borough presidents, which sounds like yeah. they're like the 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 like leader of the like local HOA. But I guess they're like a real thing since the boroughs have millions of people in them. <laughs> like to be a borough president's probably a full time job and a big deal. Yeah. Um. You know, speaking of voting machines, you know who's going to be buying some new voting machines? Who's that? Maricopa County in Arizona. Oh. So this uh. The so-called forensic audit that they're doing, the state senate of uh, uh, voted to give this firm called Cyber Ninjas. No, they're not a real company. Uh, Cyber Ninjas. They gave them the authority <laughs> to on. conduct a quote-unquote forensic audit of the Maricopa County ballots, and in doing so, they gave them access to their voting machines. Like they made them give them their voting machines, and now Maricopa County is like no, we can never use these again. They're no longer secure. They've been like tainted and messed with by an outside like entity. So we can't use them anymore. So Maricopa County is apparently now going to have to spend millions of dollars on new voting machines. And they are going to go back to the Senate and say, Hey, you ordered this audit. The Oklahoma, the Maricopa County board of elections has said this was completely unnecessary. It ruined our voting machines. So we are going to need money for uh, new voting. Right. Machines you break it, you buy Senate. it. How do you think? How do you think a request like that would go over in Oklahoma? The Oklahoma, let's say, the OK, if OK Ledge told Oklahoma City, Oklahoma County, that they had to conduct a forensic audit of their elections, and Cyber Ninjas destroyed their voting machines, uh, and then Oklahoma City said to the OK Ledge, "Hey, we need ten million for new voting machines." How do you think? That, how do you think that would go? They would say no. They would immediately pass a law banning municipalities from asking for new voting machines. <laughs> That's, that's, right. I mean, that's, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> they would preempt it first, yeah. and then they would ding them in some way and prevent cities from like raising the sales tax or something, so that yeah. they couldn't. They would have to buy it, and they couldn't raise money to do it by yeah. aftermarket aftermarket voting machines. Do you think we could buy a voting machine? Oh, I don't know, dude. That'd be so cool. What would we, we do with it? it? Tinker with it. Tinker. <laughs> I'm not, listen, I got a lot of hobbies, but coding is not one of them. Push all the buttons and see what happens. You know, I at the uh, at the Oklahoma History Center, they have one of the old voting machines where you where you yeah. stamp the rooster. Yeah, um, and it's uh, I took a picture with it. It's, uh, you know, it was cool. I got a voting machine right here. Scott Scott wiggles his fingers. Those that's were you, spirit fingers. I just all, want to point out. That's all you need is. Uh, is uh, is is eyes eyes to see and hands to count the paper. There you go. So I I googled this while we were talking. The New Hampshire House of Representatives has 400 members. Um, that's the lower house. The upper house is the Senate, and it only has 24 members. Sure. So sure. Uh, and then it is the so cumulatively it is known as the General Court of New Hampshire. It is the fourth largest English-speaking legislative body in the world. Yeah, that tracks. Behind the Parliament of the United Kingdom, the United States Congress, and the Parliament of India. Well, all right then. There's your historical nugget for the day. Beautiful. All right, well, let's uh, quickly move on to a discussion about Medicaid expansion because congratulations, Scott. Effie, you don't live here, but Scott, uh, as an Oklahoman, you now live in a state that has expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, which was passed 12 years ago. God bless America. Now, this is a big deal. Yes, it took us a long time. However, even original Medicaid, it took 
decades for it to, to pass. Arizona, I think, was the last state, actually. This is all. <laughs> if he gives a, cons- a constricted look. It took him like 30 years to actually create Medicaid in the first place. And, and, and this is related. Not only did Medicaid expansion take effect this week, which is a huge deal, but there was some other piece of news this week, which is the Oklahoma Healthcare Authority announced that the contracts that it had signed with third-party managed care organizations to implement managed care have now been, those contracts have been canceled in light of the Supreme Court declaring managed care essentially, or at least declaring the process by which managed care was implemented to be unconstitutional. So they've canceled those those uh, contracts and there are no plans uh, for the healthcare authority to move forward with the implementation of managed care at this time. With so the, that's two big deals. Yeah. So do, are they going, is it done entirely or could they still do managed care in-house? I, I think that is an open question. They said that they are looking at, what was it, Senate bill, was it was it SB like 290 or something? It was the one that kind of, they the one that put in what they called the guardrails for managed care. Um, they, the healthcare authority has said that they are going to like, basically try and kind of like still follow that. So I think they're going to, I think they're going to try to live by some of the principles of managed care, Um, whether they're going to, you know, kind of fully implement managed care or not, I think is an open question. Can I just chime in and say, y'all, we're still in the middle of a global pandemic. Why are we fighting about whether people should be allowed to go to the doctor or not? Well, so that's the thing, right? Like the state very well, I don't know if this is going to cost them more or less money than it would have had they expanded pre-COVID. Um, I I am not 100% sure. I and guess the, either way, we got COVID CARES money to help offset right. the cost of stuff. Right. right. Like, and so, and so that, yeah, like, if we, if, if COVID had not happened, then I think it would be, it would have been costing us a lot more because we would only be getting 90% to the dollar like 90 cents on the dollar instead of a hundred. But because we got this giant infusion of COVID cash, um, I think at least for the first year it'll cost less. I think. guess we'll find out, huh? You know who would know? Who's that? Carly Putnam. We need yeah. to have Carly back on the show yeah. and answer all of our Medicaid expansion questions. I think Ellis is ready for a break. <laughs> He's reaching for the microphone now. I held it up for him, and he was like, "He was like, ooh, that could go in my mouth." What if he just started rapping? Like it's all of a sudden it's like a it's like a rap battle with a toddler. Starts freestyling. All right. Well, uh, Effie and Ellis are gonna transition out of here, and Scott and I will be back in just a moment. All right, we're back, and the other thing we want to talk about today is. Uh, the fact that a prison is being closed in northwest Oklahoma, I believe it's located in Fort Supply. That is correct. And uh, so there's lots of implications of this, Scott, and it's kind of a mixed bag, but I thought we might talk about it a little bit on the podcast this week. Um, so maybe I'll just lay out kind of some of the implications and we can we can debate the uh, merits of those points, right? So on the one hand, you have that uh, they, there are fewer incarcerated people in the state, right? So that saves the state money. Um, it, it data from uh, I found on the Oklahoman or Nondoc said that basically there are 5,000 fewer inmates or incarcerated persons in Oklahoma than there were two years ago, right? So over the last two years, that's a big decrease. So if they're not in jail, presumably, 
some, maybe a good chunk of them, are back in the workforce, um, which also means that there is more economic growth for the state. So that seems like a good thing, right? Fewer folks in prison saves the state money and more economic output for the state. However, because this prison, like many prisons in Oklahoma, was located in a uh, very rural area, that means that um, it's a big layoff, right? It's a, a, a net job loss for that area. Yeah, there's like 350 people, I think, who live in Fort Supply. That's right. And a huge chunk of them work at the prison. Yeah, so like there's 142 the... jobs at the prison, and there's the population of Fort Supply is only 350. Now, obviously, so, not everyone that works there lives there. Some live in surrounding areas. But as an idea of what the economic opportunities might be for that area, uh, so it is like a, a net job loss. And it also means that there's it's one of, if not the largest employer in that area. So it's not like they can just go into town and find another job right away. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and so they had a hearing about that this week. Uh, Senate, uh, was it Senator Thompson? It was, it was the, was it the appropriate committee? Yeah. Appropriations Uh, committee. Had a, had a hearing on this this week. I mean, that tells you what a big deal this is at the legislature. Um, and they're saying like, Hey, when we appropriated money to DOC this year, nobody told us that they were you guys were going to be closing this prison. Um, now, traditionally, it has not been the purview of uh, the legislature to decide what facilities under DOC stay open and closed. That's the purview of the Department of Corrections, which is uh, like because it's a state agency is under the executive branch. Correct. There also is a, a board, um, uh, the a, a board that previously and and. Andy, you correct me if I'm wrong about this. Previously has been like a governing board, like decisions like closing the prison um, had to be made at the board level. Like the board would have to vote on this and decide that they wanted to do it. However, one of the many reforms that uh, the state legislature has undertaken in the last few years, um, that board is now advisory. Uh, only so this is not a board level decision this is stream this is what you get when you streamline government and you give the deciders the power to make decisions Um, they decide to do things that they think are in the best interest of their agency Um, you know and on the one hand I I am a little bit like you know the cynic in me is like you know you know I don't I don't want anybody to lose their job but it also like all these folks at the OK Ledge that were anxious to concentrate power in the governor's office and in gubernatorial appointees. Um, it's kind of just, you know, to yeah. see this kind of blow back on them a little bit. Um, you know, it's just a little, I don't know what the right word is. Satisfying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, well, and you know, so in that hearing, um, the, I think as listeners probably know, right? Like the, Oftentimes, legislative hearings at the state level and at congressional level, like they are about the conversation about a thing, not about a decision, right? So in this right. case, the legislature can't really do much about it. Yeah. Um, it's happening. It's happened. Um, and some of the members like understand, but they also are politicians and they need, they want an opportunity to say their piece about this, right? Because some of their constituents are going to be mighty upset about this and say, Senator Casey Murdoch, why can't you save our prison and save our jobs? You know, and, and so I guess the, the question that the, the question that I would have is, okay, 
Like, is there an alternative investment that the government can make in Fort Supply that would maybe create some jobs, make good for the community? I'm I'm gonna bet that there probably is. I don't know. I don't know what that is exactly, right? Um, I I'm not an expert on the like economics um, and and you know the economics and job market of Northwestern Oklahoma. I don't I don't know enough about the area to know what that might look like. But I would I would guess that yeah, there is something that the state could do to like inject in, in inject a little money into the economy and maybe crowd enough to 150 but create some jobs and fort supply but here's the thing you know what that's gonna you know what's, you know what's gonna take andrew they're gonna have to spend money <laughs> right they're to spend money in fact it might even require raising a tax on somebody right right like this is the deal you can't you can't have it both ways you can't have it make government so small that we drown it in a bathtub and cut everybody's taxes and say that government has never created a job ever and then throw a conniption fit when they decide to close a prison that they don't need anymore and like go like ape shit about the jobs that are going to be lost in your city the government jobs that are going away in your community like like pick one right right but you don't get to rail about government waste and excess on the one hand but then say that we should spend 50 million dollars renovating a prison that we don't need to keep open to employ 150 people in your community right right you can't like which 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 one is it right well and it's yeah it's so interesting so i you know as you read about this i think it's interesting because it highlights the nuances at all levels of this and there was a there's a really good non-doc article about it that i will link in the show notes um about this and in that article um they had a, a little blurb or a piece of a conversation from that hearing between senator casey murdoch who represents that part of the state right he lives out in felt which is way at the corner by new mexico uh, but his district comes in to the state, includes Fort Supply. Uh, it was between Senator Murdoch and um, DOC Director Scott Crow. Senator Murdoch said, the day you made this decision, when you went home that night, how much sleep did you lose? And Director Crow said, sir, I lose sleep on nearly a daily basis because of the problems in the correctional system around the state of Oklahoma. It's not limited to one facility or community. Which I thought was like, bam, like that's the right thing to say. Because as we've discussed, probably ad nauseum on the podcast over the last three years, DOC has been underfunded for it to be, I would say, arguably effective in the ways that both parties want. Yeah, for sure. Like we're not adequately serving as a uh, correctional facility. Like it's, we we don't have enough uh, guards. We don't have all that stuff. And we certainly don't have enough money for like actual rehabilitative programs previous commissioner alba he he put a budget request of like a billion dollars yeah. or something and this is what really pissed off governor stitt and mm-hmm. he said no you're you can't put your budget request your budget requests have to go through me yeah um essentially you have to do a, a, a pre-request yeah you gotta you're not allowed to ask for a billion dollars as a political statement mm-hmm. um you know there and the, and the other thing here is that like we we should just as a make a point of saying like, what's the, I'm trying to say, like, I guess just what I said, like, if we're going to spend government money to create jobs, obviously I have no problem with that. 
we don't need more prisons. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. There's other ways. Yeah. <laughs> like we just don't like, like is the, like is DOC underfunded? Absolutely. Should they get more money? Absolutely. Should that money be used to like build more prison beds? In my opinion, absolutely not. Right. Well, because we need to keep, we need to keep closing prisons and find other ways to use the resources of the state of Oklahoma. That's right. To generate economic activity in those communities. Right. Right. There, I, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's schools. I don't know if it's like vo- vocational schools. I don't know if it's like farming research centers. I don't know if it's, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if it's tourism. Uh, we get Pinnell on the show and see what kind of tourist opportunities well, there uh, are in Fort Supply. Apparently the prison is one of those historical sites. So that was part of Senator Murdoch's argument for like why it's necessary there's some kind of documentary that was filmed out there that it's, and I, I assume it's like part of the fort and fort yeah. supply that it was some kind of historical building. Yeah, no, the prison, the prison complex itself is a historic complex, but there's another name for historic complexes. It's called museums. You don't need just right. because it's a historic prison doesn't mean it needs to still be a prison. You right. freaking Al- Alcatraz isn't still a prison, right? <laughs> right? Like right. we closed Alcatraz, and it still generates a significant amount of. Uh, I bet it generates more economic activity now than it did when it was, you know, when it had Al Capone. That's true. You know, right. Right. and so this, you know, like I, I am sympathetic to the idea of like of like close the prison and try to find another way to help that community. But we shouldn't be like the, the response to this makes me like wonder like shit, like how many other prisons could we close around the state of Oklahoma? Yeah. And we're not because they employ 500 people instead of 150. Oh sure. Right. Like the reason to keep a prison open is not to like just, pay the guards right and this is you know i think i've seen some uh comments on twitter about this right that we in oklahoma and i think this is the case nationwide right is we tend to locate prisons in rural areas i assume on the like presumptive same reason we put landfills outside of cities right like we don't want we don't want to be reminded of this part of society so we put them away so that people you know don't feel at risk as if they're going to be escaping and running amok in their neighborhoods uh, and that is an easy way to put it out of sight and out of mind, right, of citizens. Um, But it also makes it really difficult. Like, I have a good friend um, whose father is incarcerated, and he was, last I heard, was in Granite, which is a multi-hour drive from here, and his family was from Tulsa, right? And so it makes it really difficult for family to visit and engage, you know, like, and maintain a relationship with this guy. And that makes them all the more isolated, and and that's not... That is not helping rehabilitate anybody. And then when they're released, I mean, they're often given like 40 bucks and a change of clothes and you gotta have someone pick you up and you trying to get reconnected to, to society when you've been literally outside of it for years is a really difficult thing. And I should say too, that this is not limited to like Oklahoma, like New York has a major problem with this. Like New York has dramatically decreased the number of people that are in its state prison system. Um, they haven't really saved any money at all on, on in their, uh, as a result of that because they are keeping the prisons open um, to employ people. Like right. there's apparently there's a uh, there's a, a great um, if you ever listen to the the, the weeds podcast um, with uh, Matt Iglesias, um, they did a great episode a few weeks ago on uh, carceral reform. And apparently there's just like like three quarter empty prisons like all over the state of New York. 
that they don't close um, so they can keep employing people. But you're not getting any of the cost savings that you're supposed right, to get. Right, because all the cost is like personnel and uh, Yeah, you're not expenses. getting any of the cost savings you're supposed to get from criminal justice reform if the prison stays open, even right. if it's empty. You might save a little money on food, but that's about right. it. Yeah. Right. How interesting. If only uh, the government could come up with some ideas for how to employ people <laughs> that isn't prisons, right? I mean, I just, I mean, just right now, like Fort Supply, I assume it's, uh, I assume there's not a lot of trees out there. So I would guess that uh, there's ample opportunity for wind, probably pretty hot. I mean, can you build, can you, like, can you build a, can the government build a solar farm in Fort Supply? You probably can could, it build a wind farm in Fort Supply. Yeah, can but you employ people to maintain those things? You know, I don't, I don't know. Well, that's a good question. We, there should be an interim study on this. I mean, at so just for the math, 142 jobs, let's say an average of $50,000 per person, which might include salary and benefits, right? I don't know what the salary range is, probably not high enough. So we'll just say that as a benchmark. Comes out to about $6.2 million per year. Yeah. Right. So it is difficult, right? Like in a personnel-heavy situation, it's difficult to come up with something else that's right. going to involve six million dollars of government money. They build a new hospital. Does Fort Supply need a new hospital? Well, they <laughs> I mean. they don't. And so that's another implication, and we'll kind of end on this: is that if uh, like the fear like the is prison closes, the prison hospital closes have patients. That's right, because all the prisoners go to the hospital, right? And so as the hospital is losing patients as well, um, and if those other folks move out of Fort Supply because they don't have work, they'll lose it more. And so we will lose yet another rural hospital. So trickle down economics does work, just not in the way that Reagan said. <laughs> just opposite. <laughs> opposite right? Really just shit rolls downhill. That's what the right, there it is. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> All right. Well, uh Scott, I think that about does it. It's uh, a holiday weekend. One one thing I want everybody to mull over mull this over um as you go into your fourth of July. Uh, the feds recently put out a report about UFO sightings that have been, uh, that have been sightings by our military. And I've never been a like UFO, like alien, like guy. That's just not the thing I've ever been into. But apparently there are just like all these things out there that are like showing up on radar and like our pilots see them and they have a radar signature both in the plane and like in ground control. And then they do things that defy what is known about the laws of physics and aerodynamics. And they, they move in ways that should not be possible based on our current understanding of how like the universe works. Um, and uh, nobody seems to know what they are. And, I've just been kind of mulling that over a lot the last couple of days, so I, I'll leave the listeners with that. That's a good one. Listeners, um, if you happen to be from an extraterrestrial planet and you're listening to this podcast, welcome. We hope you're very interested in Oklahoma politics and government. Uh, for those of you who are terrestrial beings, live here in Oklahoma or one of the other lower 48 states, we're excited you're here as well. Happy Independence Day. Man, what a, that's a good transition. Everyone go watch Independence Day, where the aliens come and blow up our planet. There's a buddy of mine from school. I look forward to it every year. Every year on the 4th of July, he uh, he posts this speech by Bill, the Bill Pullman. Yes, yeah. In Independence Day. And I, every, every 4th of July, I look forward to it. We will not go quietly into the night. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to live on. That's right. We're going to survive. <laughs> All right, listeners. We appreciate you. Have a good week.